Politics is episode 25 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast with Tom Fox and Matt Kelly, where we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance topic. Today, we have a juicy SEC enforcement action for you, L3 Technologies and Failures of Eternal Controls. We marry that to the recent SEC enforcement action against BlackRock for its pre-taliation language in its employment agreements and use that as a springboard to talk about several different things. First of all is unforced errors in compliance. The second is that SEC enforcement is very different than DOJ criminal enforcement. And finally, how internal controls really tie into both financial accounting and compliance. We take a look at the COSO framework and how the discussions in the COSO framework are now seen in the DOJ's FCPA pilot program remediation prong around their expectations for best practices compliance program. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast with Matt Kelly, founder of Radical Compliance, and myself, Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist. Matt, welcome. Hello, Tom. Always good to be with you. Uh, This is the podcast where we take a deep dive into some subject, and sometimes we know where it's going, and sometimes we're not sure, but we always end up where we intend to. So with that, Matt, you wrote an incredibly, uh, uh, well, the case you wrote about was incredibly interesting, but you wrote a blog entitled Lessons Galore, a new SEC internal control case. And when I reread it, I was even more fascinated. So maybe you could set us up uh, with what you understand the facts to be, and then we can uh, use it for a discussion into the weeds. Sure. So this was a case that uh, the SEC handed down on January 11th to a defense contractor, L3 Technologies, uh, formerly known as L3 Communications, uh, and where the SEC fined L3 $1.6 million for poor internal accounting controls. Uh, It is a great example of how the nuance of internal control over financial reporting really does have very clear overlap with ethics and compliance. We can get into that momentarily. Uh, But the facts of the case here, um, they kind of make you wince. Uh, So there is a division within L3 known as the uh, Army Services Division, I'm sorry, the Army Sustainment Division, ASD. Uh, They had a contract to support an Air Force uh, fighter jet program for uh, about 100 aircraft. It went from 2010 to 2015. The accounting mishaps in question happened in 2013, where the L3 managers in that division realized that they were not going to hit their profit numbers, that the work they were performing was going to be more than they originally expected, and so the contract cost for this ASD division, that would come in at a loss in 2013. Uh, So basically what these managers did in this division was they came up with a bunch of invoices that they had not yet sent to the Army uh, for work that they believed they had done, but the Army finance people had not yet accepted those invoices. And then they booked the revenue on those invoices for 2013 anyways. It was roughly $17.9 million. Lo and behold, with that amount, they hit their performance numbers. They got their bonuses. Um, What's interesting here is that when this all happened, 
at the end of 2013. Somebody somewhere within that division knew this was wrong and called L3's internal compliance and ethics function. Sounds great. Isn't this what's supposed to happen? So they called. Uh, the L3 ethics and compliance team launches an investigation into this invoicing funny business, but uh, in the, as the complaint says, the investigators lacked the expertise to follow along the math of the L3 technology's billing process. So basically, they missed the invoice fraud that was happening here. Eventually, in 2014, uh, the audit committee got wind of this. Finally, they did launch an investigation. They brought in outsiders who found this fraud immediately and then also found there were similar types of accounting weaknesses in other L3 divisions. Uh, long story short, it wound up being a restatement of, I think, over $100 million. So here it is, a pre-tax charge of $169 million that L3 had to take. Um, and then we can get into all the remedial action L3 did take, which was good. But it's just a great example of how somebody somewhere knew there was a problem, and then the experts who should have solved it didn't solve it the right way. And chaos ensues. So the um, L3 did make, a, uh, I think, a, a pretty good comeback once it got to the audit committee. Mm -hmm. And I guess the thing that struck me initially, Matt, was that if you have a either chief compliance function or more appropriately a internal audit function that cannot follow your own accounting, uh, that's that's a problem. Yeah, it is, and you know it's a reminder that this can be a problem too. Because I talk to lots of forensic investigators who will always say you really need to know how to read the people, and when you're interviewing this kind of maybe potential target, you know, do you know how to figure out if they're lying or not? And the human element is extremely important. However, we still do have these mechanical processes which can be convoluted and the accounting rules can be somewhat arcane. I, I'm not an expert on U.S. GAAP accounting, but I don't think this was particularly arcane. But uh, the investigators L3 first assigned simply lacked the expertise to be able to unravel this. And it's telling that when the audit committee did bring in outsiders, they figured this out in a matter of weeks. This For, the, for an expert, they could look at this and right away they found where the problem was. And oh, by the way, L3, it's worse than you thought, which that is not an uncommon story, unfortunately. So this really, uh, I think, is a great uh, example or at least a great learning tool for lots of different issues for the compliance function. Uh, first mm -hmm. of all, as kudos to L3, it, it, it appeared they had some sort of speak up, raise your hand, internal reporting culture that allowed this information to get to the ethics and compliance office. Uh, but the thing that struck, one of the things that struck me, Matt, was this notion of expertise in compliance. Mm -hmm. and, and I raise that because for the first time last April when the DOJ announced its pilot program, uh, one of the components under the remediation prong was compliance expertise. And uh, there's a lot of debate in the community about what that meant, but I think one of the, the uh, clear things that compliance has to have is either the ability to handle their own investigation, or at least if they recognize they need uh, more focused expertise, bring that expertise to bear uh, as appropriate. And that was not done, uh, at least in the initial investigation here. 
you're absolutely right. And um, I think it's an excellent point you said at the start where clearly the attention to ethics at the ground level, that worked because somebody somewhere reported this. And we should give credit to L3's audit committee because at the top, that worked. I am unclear in the details of exactly how they did discover this, but when L3's audit committee became aware that this was an issue, number one, self-reported to the SEC, number two, uh, brought in these experts, and then number three, they did go through a rather painful uh, tax pre-tax adjustment, and nobody liked this, and their 2013 and 14 filings were you know, somewhat painful to read. And then L3 afterwards, when they disclosed what remediation steps they took, like they did some really good remediation. So except for the part in the middle where the investigators had to assess the problem once they became aware of it, that part didn't work. Everything else L3 did was great. So in the remediation steps you detailed in your blog post, uh, the first one was terminating the uh, culpable executives, which mm -hmm. is, a, I don't want to say a routine response, but one we see quite often. But really the next three were the ones that I found uh, a little more troubling because it certainly showed a, a gap in expertise. So first, they created a controller position, uh, obviously someone to oversee this from the financial perspective. Mm -hmm. Then above that level, they created a senior level employees to oversee and manage investigations into accounting irregularities, uh, clearly implying that they did not have that ability before. And then uh, the, the final one was named a new corporate ethics officer. Um, that would those three in combination indicate to me that they may have had they had some functioning program but they really didn't have, they weren't doing compliance. They didn't have the meat of a best practices compliance program with all of the either 10 hallmarks or even prongs that you would need to have to have a functioning compliance program. Uh, yeah, uh, I think, I think, and, you know, the uh, statements that they did make, the disclosures are not entirely clear on this, but, you know, I think it was just a matter of they didn't have enough people there. And it is easy to get lulled into a false sense of security when you are automating, 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 and uh, you know you haven't had compliance trouble for a while. You're looking to keep costs down, and maybe there was you know, there's a hiring freeze sometime in the past, and nothing ever happened after that. Why don't we leave it vacant? That kind of stuff. This goes on in corporate America, but then eventually it does catch up with you in ways that really make you wince in hindsight. Um, I'd know that L3 is a large organization, and it does have controllers and ethics officers and investigators in various units. Apparently, there was not the adequate expertise in this specific unit. And it does get to one other point I had raised in my post. Um, this gets to the COSO framework of internal control over financial reporting. It has a bunch of principles. Principle four, company demonstrates commitment to a competent workforce. That is both skills people have and actual people sitting in desks and chairs. Um, and L3 came up short in this particular instance and then had to fix it in an expensive way. So I really uh, appreciated you tying that to COSO. That's, COSO is something that we both have written about extensively and think about, but it really shows to me the connection that you started with at, uh, at, when we initiated this podcast of uh, financial controls, the accounting provisions tying to compliance 
and how the COSO framework really uh, sits above both and ties them both together because the principle four uh, reads demonstrate a commitment to a competent workforce. That's a, almost exactly what uh, the Department of Justice listed in the remediation prong of the pilot program, that there mm -hmm. be uh, compliance expertise available to the company. So now we have the DOJ tying to a COSO principle, and then you using that to explain uh, in a broader sense how COSO brings together both financial accounting controls and compliance controls, at least it puts it all together in my mind. I'd, I think so, and you know, I know that uh, there may be a lot of ethics and compliance officers from more of a legal background who will get the, the misperception that because COSO originated in accounting world, therefore I should kind of shy away from it and it's a bit intimidating. It's not. Uh, when you strip away a lot of the accounting applications that COSO has, the principles behind it, and there are 17 principles, like a, a lawyer could read those and say, oh yeah, I get this. I don't want a junior level associate uh, running my FCPA compliance program because it's big and complex. I want somebody more senior. That's all the COSO principle four is about competent staff. Uh, there are many ways that you can look at them and game out, this is how I, th I should work this, or here's the uh, ethical and com the behavior principles that COSO is trying to get at, even though COSO does have a lot of technical applications in accounting and, you know, just pal up with your VP of finance down the hall and the two of you would be able to come up with a very good system for these sorts of things and these projects. So it really ties into the first time I read uh, the COSO 2013 framework, uh, I thought, wow, this has nothing to do with accounting. This is all compliance. Mm -hmm. And it really puts that together. And as you said, if you strip away even the, uh, the specific financial control component, uh, I think it's a wonderful framework around compliance. And as we talk through this and go into the weeds, I really see how the Department of Justice is, is bringing their, those COSO concepts into some of the things uh, that they were talking about. But Matt, this, this blog post really brought up for me another issue that you specifically addressed in a later blog post this week called SEC Dings BlackRock for Pretaliation Clauses. Yeah. And I really wish I had thought of this, uh, but I have to credit you for unforced errors in compliance uh, because L3 was close to that, but um, you really think BlackRock really made an unforced error? Um, they did, and I will give BlackRock credit that uh, in this wave of pretaliation enforcement actions we've seen, this is the first case I've seen where BlackRock became aware that they had a pretaliation problem and they cleaned it up before the SEC ever arrived on their doorstep asking about it. Now, ultimately, the SEC did wind up on their doorstep asking about it because the agency was doing a sweep and they got swept up. But uh, the, this is the first time where they were doing a review of their policies and then found that, oh, we do have this. This is going to cause us trouble. Clean it up. Um, the details are that over the space of five years or so, they had about a 1,000 employees waive their rights to collect whistleblower rewards. Uh, it did not forbid them from going to regulatory agencies. Uh, but the other ugly fact here is that BlackRock imposed the fee or the reward waiver 
after the SEC adopted its whistleblower rewards program. Clearly, in 2011, somebody at the firm was aware of it and thought maybe we should try and blunt the appetite to go running to regulators. Um, we've seen other pretaliation cases very similar, but these waivers existed before whistleblower protections and whistleblower bounties under the Dodd-Frank Act, before that ever came to pass. These things have been around for 10 years or something like that. But uh, whatever prompted BlackRock to impose this in 2011, later on they came to their senses, they cleaned it up. Um, that's why when you look on a per-employee number, this is a relatively low penalty of $344 or so per person. That's not much money. BlackRock's a very large firm. Compare that to what we saw last month when the SEC whacked an energy firm that did use retaliation clauses to actually try and stifle a whistleblower. They got a $1.4 million penalty for a small, a far smaller group of people. So that was a $2,560 or so per offending agreement that that other company had. Sandridge Energy was the company. Um, I actually take this as BlackRock was trying to do the right thing when they became aware of it, and the SEC saw that. They appreciated it, and um, they're drawing a line between those companies that have blundered into this and are trying to clean it up and those companies that are trying to pretaliate, and they're going to have their a much firmer slap up against the head. And your post really brought up another issue for me that I want, uh, it's a little bit different direction, but I wanted to uh, to throw it out there because um, I've seen it, or we've seen it now multiple times, which is if you're a public company subject to uh, regulation by the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, you can be drawn up in some type of enforcement action through these sweeps. You can be sitting at your desk uh, as a chief compliance officer or any other officer and get a letter from the SEC saying, uh, we'd like to uh, uh, review your internal controls around X, mm -hmm. uh, around compliance, around financial controls, around your language uh, for on your termination agreements. And you have to respond to that. And if the SEC finds your response deficient, you could certainly be subject to a fine or penalty. You Although, could be. I uh, agree that uh, this one is, is relatively small, particularly for a company the size of BlackRock. Um, you do not have to have engaged in uh, criminal conduct or even illegal activity for the SEC to, to find your internal controls uh, or the accounting provisions of the FCPA um, not effective. You know, what we're seeing right now with these retaliation announcements is the result of a sweep that began roughly one year ago. And so, yes, that happened. Um, I, I don't know. I don't have any reason to believe the SEC was specifically looking to sweep BlackRock. I think they just swept them because they're a large firm. Uh, but what we're seeing right now is we know the SEC, as another example, is doing a sweep of abuse of non-GAAP uh, metrics that companies might disclose in earnings releases. Uh, we have not seen any enforcement action yet as a result of improper use of non-GAAP metrics. I wouldn't be surprised if we do sometime later on this year. These things do take some time. Uh, so there are, yeah, there are sweeps. Many years ago, people remember 2007, the big sweep was backdating of stock options. And we went through a craze in 2007. Everybody was you know, looking over their backdating of stock options. There were a couple of enforcement actions. It became a big deal and hysteria. You know, we go through these 
paroxysms of uh, attention to various issues. This is one. Non-GAAP is another. There'll be another after that. And I guess the thing that's frustrating to me is you point out yet again that a global <clears throat> search cut and paste in your termination documents or even your employment agreements would probably solve this problem. Which is pretty much what BlackRock had done. Um, and you know, it doesn't take much time. BlackRock became aware of its pretaliation uh, concerns sometime in the spring of 2016 and cleaned it up, I think, in a couple of weeks, you know, because the enforcement action does say by March 31st, 2016, BlackRock had done this you know, and it was all fine. Uh, then only later did the SEC sweep come around and it led to this relatively minor action. But on pretaliation, it's clear. Don't imp impede whistleblowers' ability to go to regulators. Taking something away from them, if they do, that's an impediment. Taking away the potential to earn a reward is an impediment. I, it just doesn't strike me as an overly complex concept. So uh, in two cases, we see, uh, I think, what we both might characterize as unforced errors in compliance. Indeed. Matt, as always, it's been a lot of a uh, ton of fun for me to go into the weeds in this subject, and I'm sure we will have something next week to uh, take another dive into. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to Episode 25 of Compliance into the Weeds. I have two requests for you. The first is, if you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, if you would rate us, it would definitely help in our rankings. The second is, Matt and I uh, always enjoy questions, and we're developing a mailbag episode. So if you have any questions, please email them to me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com or matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>